Hey my friend, this is Joe Bakmotsky and welcome to Simplify Cancer Podcast. Listen, having made it past cancer, I know exactly what it's like to believe it with uncertainty. Especially now, in the time of COVID-19 pandemic, when we want to do our best to stay safe. Because today life is even more challenging, especially to those of us who in one way or another have been touched by cancer. Now, more than ever, we need better ways of navigating the everyday reality of life beyond cancer and to really recognize our own needs when it comes to getting the support and care that we want. You know, to get the support and the care that you need right now on your terms. So today, we're talking to Professor Jeff Dunn. He's the Chief Executive Officer of the Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia. And and, and really, Jeff is an expert in cancer control. And he's been instrumental in creating better supportive care and quality of life for those with prostate cancer. All right, Jeff, well, thank you so much for being here. I mean, I've been really looking forward to talking to you. So welcome to Simplify Cancer Podcast. Thank you, Joe. It's my pleasure. I certainly appreciate the invitation. (laughs) Jeff, you've done so much, so many fantastic things in the world of prostate cancer. I want to ask you first, Jeff, so what is different about men facing cancer? I mean, do we have different needs? Do, do Do we express things differently? There are some differences. I mean, you know, by and large, and as a generalization, people talk about men being more problem focused than women. So men will collect information to try and solve a problem. Uh, Women, you know, once again, as a generalization, you know, people talk about women being more interested in that connection, in that communication style of coping strategy. So look, there there are differences. I, I suppose as a as an overall comment, I'd say that cancer patients, irrespective of gender, are not passive recipients of support. So when faced with a life-threatening disease, people, men or women, will will make choices uh, based on the information at hand and their personal preferences about how they receive information, support and services. It's a difficult one to generalise, Joe. Yes, absolutely, Jeff. And it's, it's, it's something that, because you know, when you're diagnosed with cancer, it just flips your entire world upside down. So, Jeff, what would you say to someone who has been newly diagnosed, uh, you know, with, with, with cancer and maybe struggling to, to really come to grips with their disease? Well, Joe, first up, for someone who's newly diagnosed, I, I mean, the message is from all our evidence and all our research that, that most people do well over time. So it gets better. Not for everyone, but for most people. And I think that's the important message. So if you're, if you're newly diagnosed, you know, and you're finding that you're working out how to, how to deal with this, you know, s- seek out information uh, for a start. F- find information. Uh, be prepared to talk to others, trusted friends, you know, if, if you want to just certainly do talk to people. Uh, use those supports that are around you. And for many of us, there are supports around us. You can always go to reputable sources. So, you know, if it's cancer, you know, cancer councils or Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia or Carers Australia or the National Breast Cancer Foundation. But you, you can do these sorts of, you can find these sorts of reputable organisations. And of course, your healthcare team, certainly talk to them about how you're feeling, to your general practitioner or, you know, to your, if, you, if you're in, if you're seeing a psychologist or whoever, but talk to them about how you're feeling, how that's going. And, and remember that there are things that can be done to help. 
Yeah, and I think that's such a huge point that you make, Jeff, about you know, really exploring all sorts of different possibilities to get help. It shouldn't be just kind of one thing, but uh, you know, it, it is, there's so many options. And I think it's the more tools you have to, you know, to kind of help you get through it, the better it is, isn't it? Uh, well, look, without a doubt. And, and you know, that's what we said. People seek out things that suit them. They, each of us have different ways of, uh, of coping, of gaining knowledge, of making decisions, of assessing choices. So it's important that we look at, you know, providing not just answer or not just one option, but the, a, a multi-layered sort of suite of potential responses to to provide for individual needs. And, and remember, those needs vary over time. So, you know, what people need at the point of diagnosis uh, may well be different to what people need six and 12 months down the track. And once again, it depends on, on their cancer, on their diagnosis, on their treatment, on their own makeup, on their you know, on their family, on the community, on their socio-demographics, on their financial means, all of these things uh, play a role. And it's, it's complex, but it's important that we understand there are things we can do and things can get better. Yes, exactly. And, and, and as you say, Jeff, the, you know, we have uh, different, different ways that we respond to things. And really, uh, you know, as a behavioral scientist and, and, you know, a researcher in cancer control, what would you say, you know, are your... I guess, observations about how cancer impacts people in a different way. We're all different. And when you think about people's response to cancer, it's, it's about individual sort of responses, about their, their psychological makeup. It's about, you know, their social response to their communities, you know, uh, how they've grown up, their socio-demographic situation, their ethnicity, their cultural backgrounds, all of these things impact. They all influence. They all mediate response. And, of course, there's no one thing which which again points to the importance of looking for looking for a, a range of responses a range of channels uh, for patients who are diagnosed so that so that we put them in the middle of this and provide them with options to make choices in ways that best suit themselves yeah that's great jeff because it's, it's all about yeah knowing though that options are available and and then choosing what's right for you because you know, Jeff, I really remember uh, going through cancer and thinking, you know, this is this is cancer, like it's supposed to be hard, you know. Yeah. And you kind of get caught up in your experience, and and sometimes it doesn't occur to for you to kind of seek help. So, like, how do you really know that you yourself may be struggling with something and you might need help? Like, is is there like an objective measure to to kind of get a handle on stress? So, Joe, a couple of things and. You know, thanks for sharing your story, and you're right. You know, a cancer is, is a life-threatening disease. So when someone's diagnosed with cancer, it's usual to be concerned about that, to, to, to feel a threat. It's okay to be a bit concerned and, and worried and those sorts of things, and but people need to, to understand that. It's, it, I mean, it is, a, it is a threat to well-being. And... Everyone responds to that differently. But in the early stages, of course, it's about understanding what that means for you and how you cope with it. Uh, in terms of objective measures for assessment, well, look, you know, it, it's not unusual for people when they first get a diagnosis, you know, their sleep patterns are disrupted. You know, they might be a bit more irritated than they usually are. Their concentration might be reduced. I think what's important for people is to, is to be able to assess or think about when that, when those sorts of things get to the point when they have a, you know, a significant or meaningful impact on their 
on their lives, you know, on their relationships or on their on their work. And and they're the sort of points in time where you might actually start to put your hand up and say, well, you know, maybe I need to talk to someone about getting some, you know, advice or support or assistance or or starting to talk to others, certainly about that. Uh, from a professional point of view, the health professionals, you know, we have some tools we can use now, and, and one of those is a is the distress thermometer, which we've been putting in place and trying to encourage a standard care when a diagnosis of cancer has been made so that health professionals themselves have got, have got an objective measure when it comes to try and assess how people are coping from a psychological, social and emotional point of view. Yeah, that's fantastic, Jeff. So tell us about this distress kind of screening tool. Uh, how can it like? How can it help uh, you know me or others diagnosed? Uh, how can it help with you when you're struggling? All right. So I think you know when we're talking about people's emotions and their feelings and anxiety, you know they're 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 some they're abstract sometimes, aren't they? They're difficult to actually measure specifically, and it varies so much across people. So the distress model is a very simple. It's a very simple single point scale, one to 10, uh, and it's accompanied by a symptom checklist so that we can actually go through specific items that might be, that might have an impact on that person. But essentially, we're asking people just, you know, on a scale of one to 10, you know, how, how, it's, how would you rate your level of distress right now? And we know from all, all the evidence uh, that, it's, that, it, that it's validated, that it works. And we know that people who score four and above are more at risk for ongoing uh, distress and anxiety. So by putting the distress thermometer in, we have an objective measure, but particularly for health professionals in this sense, because it starts the conversation. So if you have something like a distress thermometer, you say to someone, let's talk about that now, and someone has a rating of four or above, well, then you can start that conversation. And these sometimes are conversations that might not happen unless you had something like the distress thermometer in play. Uh, and we see the whole range of benefits coming out of this. And once again, we know from all the evidence that it makes a difference and it will work. That's fantastic, Jeff, because it's it kind of leads you on the path to kind of discover. And, and you, I think what, what, what I really love about it is it kind of helps you to self-identify some of those problems because you can, you know, it's, it's the patient who's saying, you know, listen, I've, I'm kind of maybe struggling with this area. And as you say, this kind of can lead in you know, uh, the treating doctor to ask more questions and to help them deal with it, right? 100%, Joe. It starts the conversation. And sometimes, as I said, these conversations don't get started. And the, the thermometer provides permission for both the patient and the clinician to, to actually talk about things. And you start with an objective measure, which says, well, actually, today I, you know, I feel pretty distressed. You know, I'm a six or a seven. And then, you know, so there's things that can be done that provides the clinician that advice and the clinician that can work with the patient and make, you know, take the necessary interventions or, or make necessary referrals, you know, if, if those are necessary. Yeah, absolutely. And, and speaking of that, Jeff, like, because really, I mean, we're talking about many different approaches to psychological treatment, I guess, with people experiencing cancer-related distress and, and worry. As, you know, so if, if you're going through cancer and, and it's all a bit too much, like where do you turn? Do you look for um, a psychologist? Is it a psychiatrist? Is it a counselor? Who's going to help you? And, and also, like, how do you know who to trust and, and whose advice you should take? Oh, terrific question. You know, and, <laughs> you know, I mean, come back to basics. So in the first instance, 
talk to your doctor. Identify reputable sources. So once again, cancer councils or Prostate Cancer Foundation are reputable sources, you know, health department sites, you know, where they will talk about and provide information and talk about options. And if you talk to your doctor, you can get referrals to to psychologists or psychiatrists if necessary. I mean, each of these professions, counsellors, psychologists, psychiatrists, each have a role to play in somewhat different ways on occasion, but they each have a role to play. And, and once again, your, your general practitioner or your family doctor or reputable organisations will be able to help direct you in, in that regard. I think it's important to understand that, once again, there's just... There's no right answer here, Joe. And I think for patients out there, it is a matter of saying, well, you know, I think I need some, I think I need to talk to someone. And if you're not sure where, go to a doctor, go to your GP, or, or go to a cancer council or a prostate cancer foundation helpline, if it's prostate cancer, for example. And they're the people you can start. And then you start to get the referral points out, depending on what your particular needs are. And that's important to assess as well. Yeah, absolutely, uh, Jeff. And so let's say you do get, you know, you do get directed to, you know, a, a, a specific professional, you know, how you spoke to kind of having different needs and preferences. How do you really know that this is the right person for you? Like just kind of in the way that speaks to you on a personal level? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's critical that, that you can speak with these people on a personal level. And there's a concept called therapeutic alliance, which is, which is crucial in these aspects, which is how well the patient and the clinician connect. It's very important. So if you're seeing someone and, and you're talking with the clinician, be it a GP or a psychologist or a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a counsellor, you're not actually resonating. And that person's, you know, doesn't seem to be on your wavelength. It's, it's okay to, to actually recognise that and then get a referral to someone else because, you know, depending on the individual therapy or the particular approach or the clinician or whatever, you know, they all take their own approaches. And as we spoke about earlier, patients aren't passive recipients of, of support. You know, we actually make decisions on the value of things based on how well they resonate and connect with us as individuals. And if they're not doing that, it, it's important to, to find a source of support that does resonate with you. And so you can ensure that that therapeutic alliance is working well. Yeah, that, that, that makes so much sense to me, Jeff, that, yeah, it, it's, it's okay to seek, you know, um, a, a different opinion or a different perspective, someone who you really might, you know, kind of gel with, with better. And, and I guess it also, you know, raises a question in my mind, Jeff, look, when it comes to really seeing, let's say, a psychologist or, or a counselor, sometimes you don't really know what to expect, right, especially if you know, you might be already in high level of distress, right? You might be dealing with cancer. You know, is it going to feel unnatural? Are you going to get asked personal questions that you maybe don't want to answer? Like, do you see that as a problem, Jeff? Well, I, again, I, it comes back to, uh, to fit and that alliance. So, you know, psychologists will have you know, their own way, each psychologist will have their own way of, of approaching, you know, a person's needs, you know, and delivering therapy. And so will each psychiatrist and so will each counsellor and so, so will each, you know, sports and exercise physiologist. So it, it's a matter, again, you know, for, for the patient in that, in that circumstance to, to make assessments about how well that's working for them and, and be prepared 
uh, to acknowledge when it's not and to, and to seek alternatives. I mean, professionals, you know, whether they're psychologists or, or uh, psychiatrists and others, uh, will have, in most cases, the ability to adapt and, and, and to assess and to measure in that relationship whether, uh, whether they're connecting and, and change styles to suit. But, but in the end, if it's not working so well, you need to actually look somewhere else. And it will be personal questions, but it's about how they're put, or about the level of comfort you've got with that person, about how it's introduced, you know, and then again about what, what's done with your answers. And, and again, that speaks to that, to the importance of the relationship between the, the, the clinician, the therapist, and the patient. Yeah, there's a great point you're making, Jeff, about uh, the fact that, you know, you know, if you're a professional, you can kind of change styles and adapt. And I think that's a really important point to note, because sometimes, uh, you know, you it's easier to talk to a psychologist or a counselor as opposed to someone, who, you know, who's already a part of your life, like like your partner or a friend. Because you know, they don't they don't know you, but you know they they know how to listen and they know how to approach kind of different situations to help you through it, right? A hundred percent. And of course, you know, with friends and family members, you know, there are some things that you talk about openly, but you know, there may be some you know issues or concerns or fears that you can use that objective that objective assessment, you know, of a professional who can actually, whether it's holding up a mirror or allowing you to process some stuff or, or, or to take you through a particular process in a logical sequence to arrive at a decision that, that is important and that, you know, is not something that family members, you know, are well-placed to do, mainly because family members and friends, they care about you. They love you. They'll say things to you and for you and with you and do things which are all about support and care without that professional structure to guide some of that intervention. And of course, we all go back to our personal life. And perhaps there are some things you want to talk about, uh, which you want to keep, you know, personal to you, and perhaps, you know, professional, and, and and not raise with family members. So there are differences. But you know, families and friends provide fantastic support, and in many cases, it's 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 all patients will need, and and they'll work through processes themselves. But on occasion, there are some interventions which can be professionally delivered yeah absolutely and, and and i think you know the more help you can get you know if if it works for you then uh, you know i think that the better it is jeff you know because when we look at our society and i think you know it relates to some of the things that we're talking about now you know because the complexity is involved it kind of, kind of sometimes seems to me that we try to find simple solutions to what may be kind of complex and, and multi-layered problems. Uh, so where do you think we should place our focus? Like what should our priorities be, you know, in this instance? Do you know, Joe, you know, Joe you're right about society. It's changing, isn't it? And it's, <laughs> it's complex. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I have to say, you know, sometimes the simple things, you know, sometimes the simple things are the best. Do you know? I've seen it happen, you know, the warmth of a touch or the openness of a smile can sometimes have a touch of a hand can have a profound effect on how people are feeling and how they respond. You know, sometimes going for a walk just to clear your head can can do terrific things for your affect, for your mood, for how you feel about things. So s- simple things, you know, can and, and do make a big difference we we mustn't lose sight of those 
let's let's remember that you know they can be critical. But having said that, depending on an individual's experience, there are there are some things where coping becomes tough, and you know some some cancers have you know morbidities and side effects that challenge over over time over long periods of time. People's response can vary, and so again, it's important to have a you know understand that close personal support networks are critical. But in addition to that, you know, a, a range of programs and services, again, where we have referral options for, for patients, depending on their need and their preference, will, will make a difference. Yes, absolutely. That, yeah, that's fantastic, Jeff. And listen, you've, you, I know you launched a new psychosocial model of care for men with prostate cancer. So tell us, how, like, what led you to develop the model and how does it work? Well... So we we were working on the distress thermometer, of course, as we've discussed already. And once we published that, and we have a you know positioned statement on screening for distress, I think it was important then that we had a look at all the evidence about you know potential points of referral. So we produced the monograph on psychosocial care. Uh, look, essentially, you know, it's a health it's a, it's a self help book for health professionals who are dealing with people with cancer. Uh, so what we've done, you know, we've actually gone through and We've identified all the potential interventions that we know about, all the evidence-based ones, and we've summarised those to provide advice, evidence-based advice to clinicians who are working with cancer patients. Uh, and so it runs all those things. So, you know, it talks about, you know, it covers things off. Well, exercise, you mentioned, by the way, exercise is a very important intervention. And there's a lot of evidence for it. Just to keep active, it's very important. But, you know, positive behavioural approaches, you know, stuff around psychosocial education, psychoeducational work, you know, coping skills training, problem solving, a whole range of things uh, we've included in that monograph. So that's available for health professionals uh, when they're working with cancer patients. And it's proved to be very useful. And it's, it's great, I think, Jeff, that it's, it's got like what you're talking about. It's, it's essentially a toolkit with your kind of different tools that you pick out to apply, you know, in, to help, you know, people wherever they're at. And it could be multiple things. You know, someone might, you know, need help with exercise or they might need some, you know, some kind of a, uh, therapy, and and it really depends on. And it really kind of sounds like something that you can really suit to a specific situation, right? Yeah, and exactly right. And you know, once again, sometimes it's the simple one. You know, it's having a supportive family network, or it's talking to someone else that's shared that experience. So peer support. You know, for you know, for for many cancer patients, peer support is the preferred method of support. You know what they what is of greatest benefit to them is is actually talking to someone else who's been diagnosed with that cancer and has gone through that experience and can validate their feelings, can, can share their experience, uh, and can make them feel that they're not unusual as they face what's ahead. So, you know, it, it's important that there's a whole range of these. They're not all complicated. You know, psychologist or psych you know psychiatrist delivered complex interventions or they're not all about you know pharmaceuticals you know about about drugs there are a whole range of things that we need to keep in mind and, and some of them are about that simple human connection information and connection as well as some of those more professionally delivered ones 
It makes so much sense, Jeff. And I want to just touch on, on the support groups that you brought up because I think that's, a, that's such a hugely powerful um, you know, tools for, for, for ways for people to seek help. Like, because as you said, it's, 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 it's really filled, in with, filled with people who know exactly what it's like. I know for me, I, I, I joined this online support group, but I know that for me it made a huge difference because it was really filled with people who can identify with your experience, who can really get you. And, and in my experience, it's, it's, it's been not only so it's really helpful, but it's also something that can, can help partners as well, right? So if, 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 for example, you could be going through cancer, it's, it's, it could be great for partners to kind of talk about their life in general. You don't have to go and specifically share things that you know, might be really personal to you. You can just talk about whatever you feel comfortable with, right? Yeah, 100%. You know, peer support, whether it's one-on-one, you know, whether it's one connection or whether it's going to a group meeting, however it is, it's a, it's a, it's a powerful piece of therapy. You know, people, you know, and there are things, there are things that a peer supporter can, can do that a, that a clinician or a psychologist, no matter how well-trained they are, can never do. You know, I mean, it's that shared personal experience, which is such an important, important ingredient and unless you've gone through that journey if you as you've just said you know it's it's difficult for people to to validate someone's experience but if you've done it yourself you can share that there's a level of understanding and you know the mechanisms we we try to understand but we that that shared personal experience is, is something very precious and peer support as we've just been talking about is a very important channel for support for people diagnosed with cancer absolutely jeff and you know speaking of you know i guess that the the power of experience do you think any of that you know the the challenges that we go through uh, you know for for those of us with cancer uh is there any challenges that are kind of unique to us here in australia do you think well look you know so i put certainly we're all people you know we get a life-threatening you know, get diagnosed with a life-threatening disease, of course that's a challenge for us. And then our, you know, our cultural, our sort of ethnic backgrounds, you know, our psychological makeup, our social circumstance, all of those sorts of things, you know, will help mediate, will we'll mediate that response. I mean, in Australia, you know, we share with some other countries, you know, our geography can be a challenge for some, for sure. You know, and, you know, we've got people in remote communities. Uh, we do know from our research and evidence Sadly, even in Australia, you know, our, our country, our regional um, friends, colleagues and family members uh, don't do as well when a diagnosis of cancer is made for a whole range of reasons and some of which we're still struggling to understand. So, so geography is an issue and certainly we have vulnerable populations like other communities, you know, countries in the world too. So, you know, it's some of our Indigenous Australians, so, some of our, um, you know, sort of you know migrant populations with you know with language barriers so so we have those issues as 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 well but we're not unique in sharing that you know countries around the world all have their all have all have their own particular issues and you know what's important is to try and share the knowledge globally so that we can all work out you know what works where how do we make a difference you know and then make sure we apply that equally as as, as we can in each of our own communities. 
Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. And I guess that also kind of speaks to what we touched on earlier is is that you know it's it's there's so many different a- aspects around it, and we, and we want to be able to to manage them well, just in terms of specific situations. Yeah, well, exactly right. And and I think you know we as a community need to just understand that. Well, certainly the health professionals in our community need to understand that, and we just need to look at ways. I mean, for us, a, a big issue is right now is how we share the benefits of our technology equally throughout Australia. So why why is it that the regional cancer patients don't do as well? And what have we got to do to make sure that they share in the benefits of, of technology and communications and research, as well as people living on the eastern seaboard or or, or in southwestern Western Australia around Perth? So that, they're the sorts of things that we've got to address, along with others, of course. Yes, so true, Jeff. And, you know, speaking of different kind of perspectives and the way people perceive things. You know, I was I was reading a research paper called Not All Prostate Cancer is the Same. And I was really struck by the significance of just how diverse prostate cancer can be just in terms of its aggression and how we need to look at it from the perspective of supporting really the patient's well-being and really making decisions about their treatment. So Jeff, what's your what's your perspective around that? Well, well, you're right. I mean, not all prostate cancers are the same, and there's, you know, lots of work going on to try and better inform how we identify different types of prostate cancer and those which, those which are indolent is the is the technical term, but those which are, are slow growing and are really not going to do much. <laughs> it's best to leave them alone because you're going to, and, and those which are aggressive, and there are differences, and of course. Overlaid on that, there's a whole range of treatment choices for prostate cancer, and there are decisions to be made. So again, what what's critical is, is for you know the, the person with prostate cancer, the man on this occasion, the person with prostate cancer, you know, being close to their clinician, to their general practitioner, you know, and to their healthcare team, you know, to gather information, you know, and that's really important to get good information to have a good relationship with the healthcare team and make sure that you cultivate that so that you can, you know, get support in making decisions and making choices so that you can make the best the best quality choice you can with the information to hand at that time about your treatment. Yes, absolutely. It's all about choices and, and that's something that continues to come up in our conversation. So that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Listen, Jeff, I know that one of the areas that sh- uh, of focus that, sh- that you have is, is really survivorship. So uh, do tell me about like, w- what is some of the latest research you've done around that? And what does it really mean for, for men with prostate cancer? Joe, I'm glad you asked the question. So, so survivorship is critical. And, you know, just to, I mean, just to put it in perspective a little too, you know, and I'll talk about Australia at the moment, our figures, but in Australia, now, we have some of the highest incidence rates of prostate cancer in the world, the highest numbers. And, you know, the two, the two biggest risk factors still for prostate cancer are age and family history. And in Australia, there are more men and we're all getting older as a population. So the numbers of men diagnosed with prostate cancer in this country in terms of absolute numbers is, is going to increase. So there are going to be more and more men out there with prostate cancer and i mean the flip side happily in australia again for example our survival rates five-year survival rates it's a statistic we spoke about those earlier joe but i'll use one now our five-year survival rates 
which is a benchmark we use to, to see how well we're going. Our five-year survival rates are among the best in the world as well. We're world-leading in that because our clinicians, our doctors, our nurses, our allied health people, our health system is, is doing a great job. So it means that we've got more men being diagnosed and, and we've got more men living longer and much longer with this disease than they ever were. So survivorship has never been more important. You know, we've got more people out there who are living longer after a diagnosis of prostate cancer. And, and for some of them, of course, there will be ongoing issues, you know, with, to do with you know, physical side effects, sexual function, incontinence, you know, pain, uh, as, as well as social, emotional and psychological um, side effects potentially. So, you know, while it's important, what's critical, we want, we want people with prostate cancer to, to live longer. We want to make sure that they, we improve life expectancy, but we also want them to live well. And that's where the survivorship comes in. It's not your best. So make sure that they live well, quality of life. And we've been working hard on that. We've developed a new, you know, with support and with consultation, through a lot of consultation with clinicians and survivors and partners, a new survivorship, prostate cancer survivorship essentials framework, which, which has identified six key elements of survivorship. But, but important in this new framework is, is the role of personal agency, which is in the middle of it which is about an understanding by, you know, the prostate cancer survivor themselves, the man in this case, understanding there's a role, there's actually a role for that for him in this it, and, and not to be passive and to help, to help understand how personal agency can improve that survivorship experience for people after diagnosis. It's so crucial that you bring it up, Jeff, because this personal agency really, to me, at least speaks to kind of... Uh, uh, that crucial feeling for a man is to really to be to feel like they're in control of their life and to feel that they are making you know active decisions and they're doing something. I think you know earlier as you were talking about having that problem focused approach to feel that you are doing something in order to to have the life that you kind of want, right? Yeah, yeah. and hundred percent. And we spoke. That's right. We spoke about that earlier. So. You know, there are things that we can do. There are things that individuals can do to influence what's going on around us. And, you know, that issue about personal agency, the connection with the healthcare team, you know, understanding the information, being a part of that decision-making process and trying to influence that in ways which actually reflect your own personal preferences and approaches can make a difference. So, you know, personal agency is a concept that, we, we've added to the framework, and it includes, you know, health promotion, so looking after yourself, evidence-based intervention. So if, you, if you're going to try and do something and seek out, you know, ways to improve your own quality of life, it's important to look at ones where we know there's evidence because there's a lot of things out there, but we're not quite sure they all work. Vigilance. So, you know, there are things we can keep an eye on. So for the healthcare team and for the person, you know, if you're meant to be going and having tests or we've got to make sure the healthcare team even things like distress, check on people's psychological well-being from time to time from a vigilance point of view. Care coordination is critical too, Joe, so making sure that everyone who's a part of that care program or the healthcare team actually coordinates so men get the right care in the right place at the right time, don't fall through the gaps, which is critical as well. And the other thing we've already spoken about is that shared management. It's a partnership, you know, between the patient and the healthcare team and their families and about who adopts what roles where and how you best how you ensure the best possible outcome for people. 
So we have a we have a framework for survivorship with personal agency at the centre, and we're actually promoting that as a way for policymakers and health systems, for clinicians and for individual cancer patients and their family members to to approach survivorship care. Yeah, that that makes total sense, Jeff. And you know, it makes me also think back on. You know what we talked about earlier about about partners because I often feel that sometimes partners don't get the recognition or the support that they truly deserve because they you know we don't look at them because they don't have the cancer yet they are often doing so much you know so much work and supporting their loved one through cancer so and I know you've done a lot of work on researching the impacts or know that, that, that cancer can have on partners and the community as well. So tell me more about how cancer can impact those kind of around us. Well, well you're 100% right again. I mean, for example, you know, we need to understand that cancer, you know, impacts that individual who's received the diagnosis, of course, but it has significant impacts on, on partners and families and, and, and close friends and relatives, and in fact, sometimes in whole communities. I mean, we've seen stuff where a much loved and respected community members, you know, have got a diagnosis of cancer, and it's it's impacted whole communities. And it, it's important to understand that. I mean, we know from research, for example, female partners of many cancer patients actually report higher levels of psychological distress than the person with the cancer themselves. Now, this may be mediated a bit by gender difference and how, how women tend to express distress but it it reinforces your point uh, that you know a cancer diagnosis uh, needs to be seen as in, as having an impact beyond the person themselves and there are once again you know support services and programs where we can you know work with and encourage coping effective coping for partners the first step though is to is to acknowledge and and, and recognize that this can be an issue that it does happen and that's where awareness out there is is critical so partners and families 100 are impacted by a cancer diagnosis yeah absolutely jeff and you know also we talked about some of the potential challenges that we might have here in australia and that might be you know with just how geographically diverse we are and it also makes me think about like technology you know i how can we harness technology in a way that really helps to connect people with support that they need? And if so, like, uh, how can we do that? And, and is there any barriers you, have you observed to, to take that up, really? First up, technology, you know, we've been using it for a while in, in different ways. For example, we've had telephone-based peer support programs for some time. You know, we know they work and they've been out there. So where we connect via telephone, people that have had cancer experience with newly diagnosed people, and all, all the evidence and evaluations, it's a terrific adventure. We've had telephone-based nursing stuff. You will have heard about telehealth and telemedicine, and, and that was all commencing and in play and doing well. So it's a critical part of, of service delivery, without a doubt. Notwithstanding all the impost and the troubles caused by COVID-19, you know, perhaps a silver lining to some extent is that it has fast-tracked our approach to delivery of remote health services around the world. So, so we know now that, you know, there have been, it, it's, how do I say, it's, it's, it's normalised 
remote delivery of services much more quickly than probably would have happened otherwise. It was probably going to happen, but it's happened much more quickly. So we see a much greater acceptance now and, and a much greater prevalence of remote delivery services via telephone or via websites or via webcasts or via all other sorts of technologies. And, and people's willingness to accept and experiment and, and try these has also improved. So it's given permission to people to try these things, and we know they work. And, and can I just tell you, for example, we've done research year, some years ago now, and, and there's plenty of evidence out there to support this, that, you know, telephone-based psychological services by a trained psychologist for most patients delivers the same, can, can deliver the same therapeutic impact as, as a face-to-face -face psychological intervention. Now, there, there are always exceptions, and there may be, and there are going to be certain circumstances or issues or challenges or problems which we better dealt with in a face-to-face -face environment. That is always going to be the case. But do you know what? There's a lot of things that we can deliver remotely, and, and we know that. As we've said, in Australia, that, that will be a relief for our friends in the regions who won't have to travel long distances. My, my only sort of warning about this is that, once again, there are some things, particularly if depending on the diagnosis and depending on issues that people are facing. There are some things which will always require face-to-face -face interaction. But what's important for us is to recognise that for most people, we can address their needs, you know, in different sorts of ways. And then we can continue that referral process. And, and if people need more face-to-face more -face activities or, or more intensive stuff, well, then we, we can at least identify them through that screening process and then start that refer referral process to make sure that they've got the service they need. Absolutely. And I'm just uh, so, you know, relieved to hear what you say about kind of, I guess, the efficacy of uh, kind of remote services like over the phone or, or video because, you know, not only for, you know, of course, the regional people living in regional areas, but in the times that we live now with the pandemic where in many ways we are kind of forced to, you know, be in our homes or not traveling and, and getting that quality support, whether that's a psychologist or, or, or something else. I think it's so crucial, right? Yeah, well, it is. And I think, you know, we are facing an awkward period. We've not experienced this before as a community. So it's important that we, we as a community look to, to build on the, those interventions and approaches and channels we've currently got which allow us to get to people remotely, and then at the same time look for look for new and innovative ways to deliver services. We need to focus on that. It's got to be a priority for us, and and it's good to see that the that the community at large is embracing that, and that and that the health professionals too are, you know, of course, committed to patient welfare, and they've made it a priority. Yeah, fantastic, Jeff. Thanks for sharing that. And Jeff, I, I hear that you've recently been appointed president-elect for the Union of for International Cancer Control. Congratulations, Jeff. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Yes. Well, it's, it's terrific. The UICC is the global peak body for cancer control organizations. It's based in Geneva. It's, you know, it's been around for, you know, 85 years. More was founded in 1933. So it's a terrific honour for me, but can I say, Joe, it's an honour I need to share share widely because I've been in cancer control for three decades now and, you know, I've learned every day from friends and colleagues and professionals 
that I come into contact with. And most importantly, uh, I've learned lessons every day uh, from interaction with cancer patients and their family members and friends. You know, and these are the lessons that motivate me and inspire me to, to, to continue in this line of work. So this UICC appointment, I'm delighted with it and I'll be using it. I can assure you and your listeners to leverage everything I can to improve cancer control outcomes in Australia, but of course, uh, more importantly, globally as well. Yeah, that's fantastic to hear, Jeff. So congratulations on that. And so um, what are some of the some of the things that you hope to achieve there? Well, I, okay, so this year around the world, there'll be about 18 million people uh, diagnosed with cancer. I mean, it's a big number. This year around the world, there'll be about 9.5 million people die from this disease. And that's a tragedy. And we need to do something about that. And we're working at it. But, you know, those numbers, as we look at them now, they're going to go up. You know, for example, we estimate that by 2030, which is what, 10 years down the track, that 9.5 million deaths each year will be 13 million. Wow. You know, so that's another 3.5 million people. Every year he'll, he'll die from this disease. And as we've spoken about, that's 3.5 million you know, mothers or fathers or sisters and brothers. That's 3.5 million additional people. We need to work on these things. Concerning stat is that of, that 13, of those 13 million deaths we'll see in 2030, about 80% of those will be in low to middle income uh, countries around the world. So. There's, there's a job to be done in equity. There's, there's a job to be done in, in, sharing, in sharing the technology and sharing the benefits. That remains an issue for the UICC. And you know what? We spoke about it earlier. It's still an issue for us in Australia too. So how, how do we bring together that global community, that global cancer control community, to make sure that we fund the right research and we share the benefits of that research well, that we improve treatments and make them readily available no matter which country you live in, they're issues for us. Another important project we're looking at, you know, we're working very closely with the World Health Organization on the elimination of cervical cancer program. Can you imagine, can you imagine that, a, a world that's free from cancer of the cervix? And, you know, this is something we're actually looking at. This is something we're working towards. It's, it's a possibility. So we're delighted in that. That's fantastic, Jeff. So relieved to hear that you're tackling this huge issues you know around cancer so thank you for doing that and thank you so much for being here for sharing your perspective and your expertise as well so thank you jeff thank you joe i appreciate very much this podcast was produced with the support of jensen australia and new zealand jensen Silag proprietary limited views and opinions expressed in this presentation are those of the presenters alone and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinion of Jensen Selig Proprietary Limited or any employees thereof.